0: thought leadership from pwc you know the finance people and the sustainability people within the organization need to need to communicate really having those conversations within the company and understanding between the finance groups and the the sustainability groups what types of new contracts and what strategies is the company going to undertake to to manage those risks And, and and are there implications from an accounting perspective
1: we're back talking ESG, this time with a refresher course you won't want to miss on some of the common ways that sustainability topics can impact the financial statements. This is PwC's accounting podcast. I'm Heather Horn and thanks so much for tuning in. With so much focus on upcoming mandatory sustainability reporting requirements from jurisdictions around the globe. In some ways, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that many of the biggest sustainability-related topics often can and do have an impact not just on sustainability disclosures, but also on the financial statements. Both the FASB in the United States, as well as the International Accounting Standards Board, have provided certain educational materials on the topic of ESG and the financial statements under existing accounting standards, And both boards have added projects to their respective agendas that will impact accounting standards in the future. So what should you be focused on today and where can we expect the boards to go in the future? To help answer those questions, I'm excited to welcome Scott Bandura, PwC Canada partner and Global IFRS ESG Financial Reporting Group leader, and Valerie Wieman, PwC U.S. National Office partner. Also joining Valen Scott is Katie Woods, a director in PWC's Global Corporate Reporting Services Sustainability Group. Katie will help us cover the idea of connectivity between sustainability reporting and financial reporting, an increasingly important topic. With that, here's our conversation. So Scott, Val, Katie, so nice to have you all here with me today to talk about ESG and the financial statements. And obviously, we're talking about both US GAAP and IFRS. However, in addition, there's such an important interrelationship with the sustainability reporting standards that happy to have Katie here to talk about that. So before we get into some of those relationships, though, thought it would be good to kick things off with just sort of level setting. Where are we? And in particular, I think there's been a lot of questions coming from preparers and financial statement users about how ESG does fit into the financial statements. And we've seen some things come out of the IASB and FASB about that. But I think more importantly, we should talk about the agenda consultations that they did relatively recently and where that brings us today. So, all of that background said, Val, thank you. If you want to share what's going on or what happened with the FASB agenda consultation and in particular, what PwC had to say and where we think it's going.
2: Sure. So when you say relatively recently, it seems like things are moving so quickly now. The fact that this happened in late 2021 is relatively recent, but so much has happened since then. But um, so they did issue their invitation to comment. And we responded and that was in September of 2021. And their consultation was for the overall agenda. So it wasn't specific to ESG, but they did mention that as one of the areas they were soliciting an invitation to comment on. So we really started with the broad themes of financial reporting because it was a broader agenda. And we centered on things that could improve the relevance of financial reporting and some of the elements that we think support that improvement in relevance. Um so by that I mean we talked about the linkage between reported information and how businesses create value. Uh we uh, thought another priority was preserving the accounting that reflects the economic substance of transactions. And then also our sort of common theme that we come back to is the need for principles versus um, really formal or, or specific rules. And I think that as a groundwork is really important because all of that applied to what we were hoping for as they approach sustainability reporting in the footnotes. And then I will mention also, obviously, because we have uh, Scott and Katie here, is that we did want to focus on convergence wherever that's possible and to have a really high bar if they were going to have a proposal that would take you away from that convergence or to diverge the accounting. Um, But so within the context of that relevance, we did ask the FASB to focus on areas that didn't have specific accounting and to clearly prioritize the ESG reporting. As we've talked about before, there have been increasing interest, obviously, in this topic, There are um, more common uh, financings that are ESG-linked. So the topic is really becoming more pervasive in the footnotes, including the expectation of more ESG-related transactions. So uh, there are some common transactions that people are trying to account for right now that really lack current-specific guidance. And the longer companies are um, sort of paving their own way and making their own decisions about the accounting, I think it gets a little bit more entrenched and harder Um, to really transition once there is formal accounting. And obviously it leads to diversity in practice in the current period. So obviously important things for them to focus on. Uh, Specifically, we talked about um, some of the examples we gave them would be the appropriate accounting to recognize and measure renewable energy credits or RECs uh, and how to account for plans to sequester carbon dioxide, which sounds really specific, but I think it is becoming more prevalent. And it does have implications for, when you're sequestering in abandoned oil wells, how does that impact the useful life, um, the accounting for the abandoned ones and then useful life for current ones, if that's your sort of end of life expectation.
1: Well, and I'll just chime in here for our listeners because you can't see Val, but she definitely has this expression on her face of, is this really that important? But I will chime in. It definitely is that important. And it, it obviously was something we commented on. And I know Val thinks so too, but I think Rex is something you know we talk about I wouldn't say all the time, but it it is coming up and versus I think carbon sequestration is probably a little bit behind or or is definitely a little behind that, but coming quickly. And I do think the theme here is let's get ahead of some of these issues and not be playing catch up. But Val, I know there was another uh, topic we mentioned that actually blossomed into a project. So clearly we weren't, weren't the only ones. But what was that? I'd like to think it was purely because of
2: our recommendation. But we, we did recommend as did others that they uh, address the accounting for investments in tax credit structures, which are really used in a broad array of topics, but they are sometimes used to provide ESG related credits for investors.
1: Yeah, so that would be for example, if you have a solar farm or a wind farm or the like, um, they do use these structures. But Val, what what happened with that? Yep.
2: So they came out actually in March. They actually issued an accounting standards update or an ASU to address specifically uh, an improvement in the accounting for the investment tax credit structures. And I know you'll have another podcast where you get into all of the details about exactly what they did say. But um, I will say that the effective day is pretty soon. So starting in 2024 for most uh, public companies on a calendar year basis and then uh, 2025 uh, for other companies.
1: Yes. So on the note of another podcast, I am going to have Jay Salaber, who's our EITF representative and did have an opportunity to give input into that project. I'll have him on later in the year to talk about that. But... With that, let's turn over then to the IASB's agenda consultation, and I'm um, still a teeny bit of Scott's thunder to say that they did conclude their third agenda consultation last July. And once again, of course, we provided input as a firm. So maybe Scott, specifically related to ESG, can you share with us some of the key points of feedback?
0: Well, so the ISB, um, similar to the FASB, the ISB does an agenda consultation, and they do this every five years officially. And uh, this was their third agenda consultation. Um, So one of the things they asked about was uh, identifying uh, things that they should put on their work plan from 2022 to 2026. And in our response letter and PwC's response, we said, you know, we would recommend developing accounting requirements for pollutant pricing mechanisms, which is what they refer to as as sort of carbon credits, um, and climate related risks in general. And uh, we did emphasize at the time the ISSB was being developed, and and we said, you know, they should work with them uh, to um, coordinate sort of their response to this, and in. July of 2022, the ISB published its feedback statement and said most respondents had in fact identified climate risk in the financial statements as a high priority project and that they would add it to the maintenance project pipeline. Um, And the maintenance project pipeline is really to deal with um, things that are not going to be entirely new standards, but sort of fixing uh, other standards that exist. And Although many participants also said the pollutant pricing was a high priority, the ISB decided to put that on what they call the reserve list, which is, you know, a set of standards or projects that they may get to if they have time, but it's not sort of as high priority. So, um, and this was because they they said developing uh, standards on pollutant pricing would be complex in terms of requiring new recognition and measurement principles.
1: Well, and I think, Scott, we had IFRIC 3, was it back in 2003 right. or 2004 that they, they tried and it, it it ultimately was withdrawn because of the objections around the models, because I do think it's complicated area of, of um, accounting. And so coming up with a a model, is not that easy. Although I have to say, I personally was disappointed to see it on sort of the, the B list and not on, you know, the front and center, Mm -hmm. but what Mm -hmm. did we see then in terms of the projects that were added?
0: So, um, they they did add now officially to the agenda, this maintenance project called climate related risk in the financial statements. And that was just added in March. And the purpose of that project is really to explore whether and how financial statements can better communicate information about those climate related risks. And, and, really, as part of that, they're going to research the cause of stakeholders' concerns regarding the inconsistent application of IFRS to climate-related risk, and and just in general, a feeling that there's insufficient information disclosed in the financial statements today about climate-related risk. And also, as part of that, they'll research whether they're, um, the educational material that they've done in the past and Um, Potentially some future standards may help address those concerns. And just in general, um, think about what other actions may be needed. So it's important for companies to follow that project and and provide input if, uh, if they feel strongly about it.
1: And then Katie, maybe just pulling you in here. One of the points Scott made was around working with the ISSB and for the benefit of our listeners, Katie has had a long history following IFRS, but now is primarily focused on um, sustainability related matters, r- sustainability reporting. But what are we really seeing in terms of them, I'll say, use this working together?
3: Yeah, Um they are looking to work together. So I think it's worth mentioning that we are seeing more and more in the discussions, whether the IASB or the ISSB, that they are talking about the different areas which. They overlap, and of course, there is going to be loads of overlap because you are talking about the front half reporting the sustainability mm-hmm. reporting and how it's consistent with the the back half reporting. um We also saw that the ISSB issued their agenda consultation, so I just don't want to be left out of agenda consultation. <laughs> exactly.
1: <see>. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and yours is more immediate. Well, at this point, that's <laughs> true.
3: It's, it came out um and it's got a hundred and twenty day comment period, so quite a nice long time for people to really take the outline of what they're asking. And what they've said is here are four different areas that we're focused on, and that includes um, human capital, human rights, biodiversity and the ecosystem around reporting. So the management commentary, which was an IASB project previously, um, which was left sort of waiting to see what the ISSB had done and see how that uh, could work together. So yeah, 120-day comment period, uh, so ending uh, September of 2023. And if I'm allowed to um, promote it, I really would encourage your listeners to to have a look at this and respond because this is what the IWSB are going to do over the next two years. So really, really important for us all to, to voice our opinions on that.
1: Yes, regular listeners know we're always encouraging people to comment on things, even if they just have one comment to make you don't have to answer all the questions is what we always say. Let me ask a question though, uh well, Katie and Scott, and I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead here, but it's interesting because you, you know, this project on climate-related risks and the financial statements. It, it seems to exactly dovetail with sustainability reporting, because I feel like all we've been talking about when we talk about sustainability reporting is identification of risks. And so are we expecting then to see some overlap between, for example, what we see in ISSB S1 and potentially this project, or is it really too soon to tell?
0: Well, the, the focus of the um, ISB project is, is climate related, right? Whereas of course the fair, um, so maybe
1: S2. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But, but,
0: but it's a good point because, uh, you know, the ISSB standards are quite broad and, um, you know, I think there are other areas other than climate in the financial statements that probably relate to some of those broader ESG risks as well. But in, in terms of the financial reporting, I mean, another thing we're seeing is a lot of companies are making net zero commitments Mm -hmm. and, um, you know the accounting for net zero is also uh, a key concern for a lot of companies. So, the the ISB is working on an, another project uh, on targeted imp- improvements to the provision standard, and they'll consider potentially adding an illustrative example on a net zero commitment to clarify that making a commitment to offset future emissions does not in itself give rise to a present obligation and, and therefore a provision wouldn't be recognised until the entity has emitted the the actual gas that it's promised to offset. So I think those types of things, you know, where there is going to be reporting of the emissions and then an actual commitment to perhaps be net zero, uh, I think that overlap is going to be critical in, in, in the near future.
3: But they've also come out together with documents so the chairs of the IASB and the ISSB have um, issued a, um, a document called connectivity what is it and what does it deliver and that has really helped I think for those who are the preparers how we are looking for connectivity between the front half and the back half and so and really emphasising the benefits of connectivity. And they're, they're emphasising that important with a number of, well, three types of connectivity, being connectivity, a uh, sort of a holistic or comprehensive uh, approach of connectivity in reports. Then there's connectivity in products. So looking at the standards, and the word that Often scares me, but taxonomies. So making sure that those standards and taxonomies are so well linked that they actually uh, are connected between the two. And the final area was connectivity in process. So knowledge sharing between those in the financial reporting as well as the sustainability reporting. So if you're doing I mean, I'm making this up on the spot, but if you're doing an, impair- an impairment um, calculation in the financial reporting space, those assessments, those judgments surely must be included in a similar way when you're looking at your sustainability reporting. Um, I probably just mention as well that Andreas Berko from the chair of the ISB he issued another article called Connectivity in Practice. It's quite a long one. Uh, the IASB's new project on climate-related risks in the financial statement. Uh, and he's really pulling on a lot of what Scott referred to but really this emphasis is ongoing of these these public articles to focus on opportunities as well as risks looking beyond climate so the discussion you mm-hmm. both had on s1 and s2 uh, and to the scenario analysis point on on impairments etc i mean there's a lot that's covered in that article i'm sure you'll put it in the in the program notes yeah but um, definitely. yeah just just something to be aware of for listeners that there is a lot out there Okay. Uh, From a discussion point.
1: Very helpful. And I think... I think that context is important. I also think, Scott, I was encouraged to hear about this um, improvement to the provisions or uh, this targeted improvement because I know those types of questions are things we're spending a lot of time talking about. So I think getting some guidance on this. And and Katie, the thing that resonated with me when you were speaking is I feel like we have a whole new financial or I should say reporting in general, corporate reporting vocabulary because now we have connectivity, we have interoperability, we have extra. territoriality (laughs) like all and there's you know other ones too so definitely you know a lot for people to learn and and even for people who are listening and just really focus more on the financial reporting side understanding this inner link with the sustainability reporting is important that said going back to the financial statements I do think it's a good time to remind people what's out there now and Scott you you alluded to it but I wanted to dig a little deeper so maybe Val again going back to you from a gap perspective what you know, how do you make sure that your ESG financial statements are appropriately contemplating ESG? Like, where would you recommend to people that they start?
2: So, I think that interoperability and that connectivity is sort of thematic. There there are the current principles in GAP accounting that would um, give you some of those disclosures about sustainability matters. So, if you start with the GAP guidance, the, the FASB actually, well, the FASB staff issued an educational paper in 2021, and that was even before their agenda consultation where they were outlining how the existing concepts uh, would address the ESG matters. And and it reminds me of the 2010 SEC interpretive guidance that we've spoken about before, where the SEC was saying, hey, there are current provisions within the securities laws that could reasonably be expected to elicit disclosures about climate. And I think the the FASB staff did the same thing. So uh, they want to be clear that they're not responsible for setting ESG reporting standards, um, but that there were sustainability events and uh, transactions that would be included in the financial statements. Um, you know, Their list isn't uh, comprehensive, but they do cover a lot of ground. So they, they speak about how the environmental matters could have an impact directly on your company's assets and operations. Uh, they talk about the inputs into accounting, primarily in the area of valuation, um, but then also indirectly things that impact your reputation or uh, your ability to generate revenue, which comes into really anything related to um, discount cash flows or fair value.
1: So I want to go back to the paper, but let me ask you. So 2010 guidance—it's interesting because we've spent so much time talking about the proposal that we definitely have been emphasizing the 2010 guidance. But I do think that's another good resource as companies are thinking about how they consider risks and what they should be considering disclosing. Clearly, that's not specific to the financial statements, but I think we've talked before, and Katie alluded to this—the front of the financial, the front part directly leads to what's in the back part those two should be linked so i think that's a good resource we'll have that in the show notes which katie already referenced and then val i know we'll put this fast we paper in the show notes so lots of resources but anything in specific you'd highlight from from that paper
2: I think that the broad concepts really do relate to that idea of things that will impact the company's ability to operate. So I think the the broad principles related to going concern and and risk and uncertainties. Uh, so part of management's assessment of going concern would really need to include, um, you know, if applicable, things like increased compliance costs. Uh, Related to emissions regulations or changes in consumer preferences, Um, basically what the sustainability standards refer to as transition risk, or how the company may need to evolve uh, in light of uh, consumer preferences and demand, and uh, regulations that may limit certain products or uh, competition uh, from that are more environmentally friendly, that may impact their ability to generate revenue, Um, and then on the risks and uncertainties. that standard, that's ASC 275, already requires a qualitative disclosure about the risks that could significantly affect the amounts reported in the financial statements in the near term. So um, basically within a year. So it's a lot of the same considerations that if taken to the extreme could impact that going concern assessment. Uh, and that relates as well to the same types of considerations for goodwill impairment. So like I said, anything that's really going to impact your ability to uh, generate income that could affect the valuation of how things are reported and the financial statements would be covered.
1: So I, I want to keep going but I want to also first pause us and just a question for you and Scott is I I found this going concern topic interesting because I definitely think the next two the risks uncertainties and the goodwill there's no question we are definitely hearing companies talk about that at it it is something in goodwill and otherwise I have to say, I, I at least am not seen yet it get to the point where it's actually impacting a company's ability to continue as a going concern. Not saying it couldn't, I just think not yet. And But just curious, Scott, maybe starting with you, if you're hearing that in practice yet, or if it's still, we're not quite there.
0: Yeah, I, I think we're not quite there yet. Um, I think Often, you know, when we talk about going concern, it's sort of the the shorter term. Yes. Risks, that's- whereas, you know, the the climate related risks we often think of as sort of either medium or longer term risks. So but, I, you know, I, I think as we progress, it, it's certainly possible that, um, you know, those risks do crystallize in the shorter term in the future.
1: Yeah, and I definitely don't want to d- discount the fact that it could. I'm d- and I, I actually really like the point you made there, Scott, is like going in concern really is one year. And I don't think we're quite there yet with with at least climate. So and I think, Val, your experience would be consistent with that as well. I, I agree. And I think the companies
2: where that would be a remote possibility are really the ones who were early movers and pivoting, because I think they saw it coming with a little bit longer so that it, they're never going to get to the point. Well, I won't say never again, um, but there it, <laughs> no it would absolutes. be unusual. Exactly, <laughs> it, it would be unusual for them to get to the point that uh, they're they're going concerned within that one year period was at risk.
1: Yeah. Well, let's hope. Knock on wood. So, how about the financial statements themselves? And I know, in particular, we tend to think about areas with estimation, and you know, just some high level examples would be helpful there. Um, sure. So
2: they are probably um, PP&E uh, where they talked about whether there was more energy efficient technologies um, or. Or changes to salvage value based on if you had outdated equipment um, or things that could impact the useful life of your fixed assets. Similar concerns actually for uh, definite lived intangibles when you have a uh, something that could impact the usefulness of your uh, intangibles or your fixed assets based on how the, uh, again, coming back to the consumer preference concept uh, and how your your sales you expect to evolve. Uh, Similar to inventory, Uh, there you could actually have some of the physical implications of weather. So if you have physical damage, where you have impact to your supply chain uh, based on weather. I know that there were some recent examples of flooding in uh, Southeast Asia that really uh, had a significant impact on supply chains. So you could have additional costs as you try to um, either find alternative sources or delays in your shipping that could impact valuation from a lower of cost and realizable value. Uh, and then similar, maybe on the uh, more specific or direct to environmental is, uh, asset retirement obligations and the existing guidance that they have on uh, environmental liabilities. So anything that's related to uh, remediation or uh, responding to regulatory risk or fines or, or governments for emissions, um, costs remove toxic waste, those are a little bit more direct and I think are a little bit more common for companies to ordinarily think about. But those are also highlighted in the FASB staff paper.
1: And then of course I can't let go of the fact that they mention as retirement obligations and environmental uh, obligations which are both as are f- our regular listeners know, I'm from the power and utilities industry, and definitely something in those types of industries and other similar ones, um, you know, potentially could be impacted by this. If you think about timeline, maybe retiring something sooner, or in some cases, for example, for nuclear plants, we actually are seeing now things getting moved later, which is very interesting, just because those are, um, you know, zero emissions, so I don't I don't know that everyone would necessarily think of. And then Val, I guess anything else that where there, something could be impacted by future income, you at least need to be thinking if there is this type of impact from that.
2: And anything related to fair value, uh, discounted cash flows, um, valuation allowances for income taxes, anything that's really looking at uh, things that could impact your future uh, earnings and anything that would impact the fair value today
1: all right that's helpful so then moving back to the IASB and this I have to tease Val slightly because she very nicely pointed out that the FASB got out their paper before their agenda consultation but I have to say the IASB far predated them because they actually got out their guidance uh, before the FASB did so Katie maybe you can share some of the resources and then if there's any either you or Scott if there's anything different that we might want to highlight from that
3: yeah of course and um it's true. The IWSB were oh, sorry, the IASB. I'm so focused on the IASB, <laughs> I do apologise. The IASB did release a couple of publications, and they explained all those different areas. Val, um, they're very similar to those covered by the IA, uh, IASB publication. Uh, the first one was. Um, published in November 2019, uh, and the second one a year later in 2020. So very much preceded the year. <laughs> one. I wasn't going to mention that. But yes. um, I had to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and perhaps quite confusingly for our listeners, uh, the first one was referred to as an in-brief, but it was an IASB in-brief called IFRS Standards and Climate-Related Disclosures. Um, It was an article by board member Nick Anderson, um, and he was really explaining very similar concepts of how climate-related risks were going to and have and will impact IFRS reporting. So again, focused on asset impairment, um, including Goodwill as well, Um, looked at the useful life and fair value of assets. So again, the areas, Val, that you were talking about, Um, and also explicitly on the changes in expected credit losses for loans and other financial assets, which... um, I don't know if that was covered by the FASB guidance. They did not cover that
2: one directly, but I think thematically, if you look at the fair value and the projections, it would be sure. consistent.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I think very similar. Um, and then I mentioned there were two documents. The the second one came out in 2020, and it really just then supported the consistent application of the requirements in the IFRS standards and explored uh, the impact of that sustainability-related matters on those financial statements. Um and so we issued an in-depth, you can still find it looking at and giving some examples of of how um, that guidance helps to identify in the financial statements what might change. And um, Scott, I don't know if you wanted to, to cover any of those.
0: Yeah, so uh, our in-depth impact of ESG matters on IFRS financial statements, it sort of draws on some of the themes from the ISB's guidance and um, again, highlights how existing standards might be um, might be relevant to various ESG uh, risks. So th- they're not new issues. Certainly, there are no new IFRS requirements before we get to the project, which I mentioned earlier being finalized. But it sort of um, highlights the existing areas of estimates and judgments within other IFRS standards, which don't actually mention climate or ESG, but you can sort of infer from um, – Various points in the standard where those might be relevant, and I, I think it's also interesting. You know, as Katie was mentioning, there was a, an article by the board member. Then there was educational guidance, so it's getting progressively more authoritative from the from the ISB because the board member's article that was one board member, and then educational guidance has to be approved by several board members, and then we're looking at uh, potentially a new standard now. So,
1: well, and I think one thing maybe to highlight, and you guys. Touched on this as well is that this is an area where whether you're talking US GAAP or IFRS. It- it's the same issues and, and for the most part maybe there'll be some subtle differences in accounting or disclosure requirements but really I would say this is definitely a place of many 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 more similarities than differences and so we often do encourage our listeners to read things uh, and these are all documents that are helpful and actually in particular I think that Nick Anderson document is a very plain English understandable way to kind of think about some of this is almost like an entry point if if you know one of our listeners is if this is something they haven't focused on as much uh, But all of these documents are helpful and and because they come at it slightly differently i think looking at both of the educational documents even if you're say just a u.s GAAP reporter just our ifrs reporter could be helpful now all of that said i think scott i've said very early on this is all great and helpful but there's definitely still some areas that really need to be addressed and this is why we brought this up in our both of the agenda consultations and specifically you mentioned the pollution mechanisms which I think we would often in the U.S. say you know emission allowances but also carbon offsets is another big area that we have spent a lot of time talking about and so specifically we can start with IFRS and and we can provided little U.S. gap color as well. But starting IFRS, how do you think about the reporting for those types of instruments? And maybe actually briefly, if you want to explain what that instrument is, would be helpful um, for our listeners, and then we can talk about that counting.
0: Yeah, so uh, actually we, we recently issued a new publication um, – IFRS financial reporting considerations for entities participating in the voluntary carbon market. And I think it's important um, to note that that focuses on voluntary carbon credits. We often talk about um, compliance regimes where, you know, it's a cap and trade system or something like that. So those are compliance um, sort of credits or offsets as sometimes they're called. Um, But when we talk about voluntary offsets or voluntary carbon credits, Those really relate to things that entities want to purchase in order to um, sometimes meet sort of uh, commitments that they're making, net zero commitments to offset carbon emissions that they can't otherwise um, reduce through operational means. So they might be left with some residual carbon uh, that they want to essentially purchase credits from. And these credits can be generated in a variety of ways. So sometimes it's, you know, forests that are generating these credits. So new trees that are being planted, etc. So there are various projects that can be undertaken to generate these types of voluntary carbon credits. Um, it, it's very much sort of an unregulated market compared to the compliance market. So you know, there's very different um, terms and different organizations that are certifying those credits. So, um, you know, there's also different levels of quality, I would say, of those credits compared to what you would see in a traditional compliance market. Um, I I do think that these issues are becoming more material for companies because uh, we, we are seeing more and more companies try to offset emissions using these voluntary credits. And of course, there's no IFRS accounting standards that deal with this, you, you mentioned different three before that was really relating to the compliance mm-hmm. market and, and that was withdrawn. So now we're dealing with sort of uncharted territory and the uh, sort of voluntary carbon offsets uh, market. So um, we did come up with some uh, or develop some guidance uh, based on, you know, the general application of the standards. Uh, so discussing the accounting principles that would apply to purchasers of those credits to, uh, projects that are generating the credits. And I think it's fair to say that this will continue to evolve because it is a a new and emerging topic that's really, as I said, becoming more and more material to companies.
1: Yes, definitely. And I I do think it's a helpful paper to give some of that background and then as well, talk about the county models. Now, Val, maybe turning to you, anything from US GAAP perspective, we'd say that's different than maybe was highlighted there?
2: I think from a U.S. GAAP standpoint, there's um, nothing that addresses specifically the the carbon credits. And I think in practice today, and you're familiar, obviously, with your industry background more so than, than I am, but um, you know, typically you would see them either use an inventory model or an intangible model. And then you also need to make sure you consider, uh, depending on the how the arrangement is structured, whether there are leases or derivatives involved. So there's really nothing specific right now. Um, Although, obviously, I think you've had a separate podcast on uh, getting smarter on carbon offsets and and the details that people can reference on that podcast. But uh, in addition, in May of last year, the FASB actually had a project to its technical agenda um, specifically for the accounting for environmental credits. Uh, And that was... Coming back to our initial discussion, that was a direct result of something we had asked for in the agenda consultation.
1: As well, well, and others. I don't and think others, we right. could take sole credit. Others did as well, and it was
2: uh, they acknowledged that the project was added to the agenda as a result of that call for um, additional guidance, and, and that will cover renewable renewable energy credits. It'll cover carbon offsets. Um, there really hasn't been any action on that project since uh, it was added to the agenda, um, but definitely moved from their research agenda to their. Uh, technical agenda. So we expect to see more uh, activity on that, again, because of the increased prevalence and increased call for that guidance um, in the U.S. gap.
1: All right. And then another topic that, Scott, you and I have spent quite a lot of time talking about uh, and that I think is helpful just to remind our listeners also is something called, uh, well, we have obviously power purchase arrangements, but more commonly these days we're seeing a lot of these virtual power purchase arrangements. And specifically just from a a background perspective, even what that is, and then I'll let Scott talk about the accounting, but we're also often seeing arrangements with uh, non utility utilities would be typically the ones entering into these with like a wind farm or a solar farm or otherwise where effectively I'm going to shortcut this and then Scott can talk about the accounting, but simplistically they are buying the renewable energy credits because they want to be able to take credit for renewable power instead of whatever power they're actually consuming. But because of the way the the electricity grid works locations and otherwise, they are effectively selling the power into the grid but then compensating the the developer for that power typically with a fixed price because that actually helps these projects get get built. And so you have basically a um, financial settlement for the power, physical settlement of the RECs, and lots of accounting issues. Some differences under US GAAP and IFRS, but let's start with the IFRS.
0: Yeah, I think that was a good uh, explanation, Heather. I mean, so we're we're really seeing the two types of the virtual power purchase agreements where there is this sort of embedded uh, contract for differences that that is sort of like a financial power swap embedded in the in the contract where companies really are just trying to buy the um, the environmental attributes but they don't want to deal with the actual delivery of of the power but we are also seeing uh, power purchase agreements like that do result in the physical delivery of the power so I think depending on the market and and the nature of the company we're seeing we're seeing both of those become more prevalent um, you know certainly, Both can have environmental credits or uh, environmental attributes, renewable energy certificates attached to them. Uh, They're just two different ways of of sort of acquiring those uh, renewable energy certificates. And we did publish an in-depth on this um, recently, accounting for green and renewable power purchase agreements from the buyer's perspective. Because, again, I think the buyers are really where we're seeing uh, a lot of the issues arise, given that. A lot of them are corporates that may not have gotten into power purchase agreements in the past and have just been buying at spot in the past, but are doing this to sort of meet some of their goals in terms of uh, carbon emissions. Um, Interestingly, the uh, IFRIC, the Interpretations Committee, recently received a submission on how to interpret what we call the own use exception. So sort of like um, if in U.S. gap speak, that would be sort of like the normal purchase, normal Mm -hmm. sales exception. Uh, how to interpret that for uh, power purchase contracts, physical ones, um, given the current um, market and geopolitical conditions. So that submission describes three different potential fact patterns and issues where even a physical uh, contract may have to be accounted for as a derivative because it fails uh, that own use criteria. So uh, we've been doing some outreach and in, in responding to the IFRIC on that. Uh, and basically we've found that Again, these are becoming much more prevalent, you know, just from um, that outreach, we've seen uh, many countries say that companies are entering into these on a much more frequent basis. And also that they're seeing many um, significant uh, areas of volatility in their income statement as a result of some of the accounting. So I would say um, this, this is a bit compounded by a previous IFRIC decision as well on load following swaps where um, companies that want to use these types of instruments as hedging instruments there's a bit of a an issue with that Um, based on that previous IFRIC discussion uh, they won't be able to achieve perfect hedge effectiveness or sometimes it's even difficult to get into hedge accounting for some of these so um, you know that's also become more of an issue recently given that companies are as I say experienced experiencing quite a bit of volatility in their income statements
1: well and i'm i'm smiling because i think scott that as soon as you said load following swaps we probably <laughs> lost uh, no. half our audience <laughs> but I, i'm with you and actually i just made it jotted down a note because i do think this is a increasingly common area of accounting There are U.S. gap, IFRS differences, uh, and which I am itching to get into, but I'm not going to. Uh, So, but I do think I will be talking to you and one of my U.S. colleagues about, let's do a follow-up podcast specific to that, because I think it's definitely would be a good topic. All right. So I, I I know we're getting close to the end. I just want to make sure we hit if there's anything else out there that we should be talking about um, that would be helpful that we've published on
3: some of these accounting issues. Maybe I could just jump in for a second yes. and just saying that all this talk on power purchase agreements and the VPPAs, etc., we can see so much, so many questions coming in or, or perceive them to come in on the sustainability accounting because of the net zero commitments that companies are making. So then then going off and, and looking at these different PPAs and trying to work out how that then relates to the sustainability reporting side of things. But the need to disclose gross emissions, i.e. you can't net off. So even if you get the hedging or you get the ability to net off, actually the gross emissions then mean that there is still a disclosure requirement. So I just wanted to jump in on that one. Yes, further. and
1: actually, Katie, I think that's a great point because the the requirements under the Greenhouse Gas Protocol or other greenhouse gas reporting for both these carbon offsets and the renewable energy credits are very specific. So it's a whole other topic we probably should be doing, a follow-up uh, podcast on. And that's when we are working on some publications Anything else, though, from a publication point of view?
0: Yeah, so a couple of others to highlight. So we have uh, an in brief on the impact of the Paris Agreement on financial reporting under IFRS. A lot of companies have gotten questions, you know, are their financial statements Paris aligned? Um, and so we summarize some considerations as to how uh, IFRS deals with sort of Paris alignment and um, how to sort of Think about some of those requirements uh, from, a, from an IFRS perspective and sort of a broader reporting perspective. We also have an in brief on the impact of climate change on cash flow projections and IFRS impairment disclosures. And that really summarizes from a practical perspective how to incorporate the impact of climate change on cash flow assumptions used in impairment tests.
2: That's written from an IFRS standpoint, but the, the principles should be applicable for FASB and GABA County as well.
1: You stole exactly what I was about to say, Val. So thank you. That's an excellent point. So, yeah, I think all of these resources definitely encourage people, no matter if they are GAP, a US GAP or IFRS reporter to To take a look at those, because definitely a lot to think about. And I think going back to our overall theme of this is that you can't think about either sustainability reporting or financial reporting in a vacuum. And Katie, maybe coming back to you, I know we already spoke about connectivity, which is sort of that theme. But is there anything else as you look ahead to the ISSB agenda consultation or to, you know, we're expecting to see those ISB standards coming out at the end of June, that where we think there is going to be something from a financial reporting perspective that companies should be thinking about? Um, I I think
3: (laughs) the quick answer is a lot. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, as they, as we talk about those new standards coming out, we know it's not just the IWSB. We've talked previously about the SEC. We've talked a lot about Europe as well. There's intercon- and interconnectivity between those sustainability standards with financial reporting. And then as we move forward from an IWSB standpoint, looking at areas like biodiversity and natural capital, looking at human rights or human capital, they are all going to reflect on, on the financial statement reporting as well, and so whatever we do, I think all of us are going to have to keep connected ourselves by the IASB and IWSB and SEC rules to see that we are making sure the consistent approach to to reporting.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's an excellent point. I do think you know our vocabulary has had to get a lot bigger, and for a lot of companies, it's now going to include multiple financial reporting, potentially, gaps, as well as then different sustainability reporting. And maybe then, um, Val and Scott, I'll also ask you any final thoughts as you – focus more from a financial reporting perspective of where you would tell companies, you know, when you're talking to companies about this, how you're, where you're telling them to focus right now. And maybe Val, I'll go to you first. Um,
2: I think the SEC is a little bit different from when, when you look at the European standards and the ISSB, because the SEC has proposed to include some disclosures in the financial statement. So I think there is this renewed focus on uh, what should be disclosed. So I think you have sort of that overlaying, what well, we already discussed on some of the accounting, but that, that connectivity and that, um, you know, your, the new vocabulary you're speaking about, I think resonates really well. And I think that really is just the the overarching uh, recommendation that we have for companies to, is to think about in the context of your overall risks to make sure that maybe a little special focus or um, it may be a bit of a stretch for some companies, they need to get used to the idea of considering those environmental, those biodiversity, those other risks, um, and how they could impact their financial reporting.
1: Excellent point. And Scott, how about from your perspective?
0: Yeah, I, I would say I'll, I often tell companies not to operate in silos. Like So you know, the finance people and the sustainability people within the organization need to need to communicate. And a lot of these new types of contracts, as Katie mentioned, a lot of them stem from sort of the company's uh, commitments from a from a climate perspective or broader ESG perspective. So really having those conversations within the company and understanding, um, you know, between the finance uh groups and the the sustainability groups, what types of new contracts and what strategies is the company going to undertake to um to manage those risks? And and are there implications from an accounting perspective from those types of contracts that companies are entering into?
1: All right. Well, I definitely agree with that. And I actually was meeting with our tax folks a week ago or two weeks ago about even their role in ESG. So there's just one more party. I will put a pitch in that that should be included. So lots of resources we talked about today. We definitely will put those all in the show notes so people can find them. But Val, Katie, Scott, such a pleasure to be here with all of you. And thanks so much for joining me today. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.